Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Hey guys, it's Megana here. Hope your 2021 has started off great and your absite studying is going well. We have a two-part trauma review today featuring Dr. Matthew Martin. As a reminder, the second edition of our Absite Podcast Companion review book is available on Amazon in paperback format with new colored illustrations. The ebook is also available for purchase. Rate us and review us, and as always, send us a message if there's new content you'd like us to put out. Good luck, and let's get into it. Okay, so, so all of trauma starts off with what? ABCs. That's right, or A. So, so first pointer, when they, whenever they give you a question of you're evaluating a patient who just comes in, the answer is usually A for airway. That's the first part of the primary survey. So, so the primary survey is ABCD, and that's, that's focused on identifying only life-threatening or major pathology. So everyone's familiar with airway breathing circulation. We won't get into that too much. Disability. So, so Kevin, what is disability? What are, exactly are we doing when we get to D? Right. When we refer to the primary survey, there's uh, two aspects of disability. Uh, it's the GCS and the, the pupillary exam. Okay, good. And what are we looking for on D? What life-threatening pathology? Uh, intracranial hemorrhage. Good. We're looking for uh, intracranial pressure rising. So GCS in pupils, and you might get a question that asks, what component of the GCS is the most useful or most predictive in terms of uh, outcome? Uh, I believe that's your motor function is the most predictive. Yeah, so the, so the motor score has actually been shown to be almost as predictive as the entire GCS. There's often a question where they'll give you all the components and ask you to calculate a GCS. So just, just make sure you remember the scoring of the GCS. Um, and obviously the, the old adage, a GCS of less than eight? Intubate. Intubate. I think that's, that's almost always a question. Okay, so you get to your GCS and pupil exam, and you have a unilateral fixed pupil. We'll say the left pupil is fixed and dilated. What does that make you worried about? I'm worried about um, that there is herniation on the left side of the brain. Good. So, so the fixed dilated pupil, unilateral, remember it's indicating pathology on that side. So in that scenario, it would be a, a left intracranial, usually hemorrhage, that's causing compression of the optic nerve. Okay, patient with bilateral pinpoint pupils. So, so probably most commonly would be narcotic, narcotic use, but if you have bilateral pinpoint pupils from a significant brain injury, this is, this is a less common Okay, so so it's from pontine hemorrhage. Hmm. It's it's one of the only ones that'll give you pinpoint pupils, and I just remember it as the P's pinpoint pupils pontine. Okay, so we already talked about a head injury, GCS of less than eight. So one of the things we always need to know about is who should get an intracranial pressure monitor. So so who would be a candidate for an ICP monitor? So someone with a severe head trauma that has a intracranial bleed or concern for intracranial hypertension and something that you cannot get a good exam on. Uh, and so I think generally with a GCS less than eight would be a person that would qualify. Good. So, so yeah, those are the brain trauma foundation guidelines, GCS less than eight with an abnormal head CT. There are additional guidelines for even with a, with a normal head CT, but if they have a GCS less than eight and they're older, 
or they have unilateral uh, localizing signs. But but generally, anybody with a GCS less than eight and they have an abnormal head CT, that's criteria for an ICP monitor. And what kind of ICP monitor can can we use? Uh, Where well, can they place that? Well, they can. I mean, they can place it at the bedside in the ICU. You can place. A, I mean, what areas of the brain? Oh, into the ventricles. Okay, uh, so that would be called. Um, and uh, intraventricular drain. Yep, or a ventriculostomy. Um, And the nice thing about that is you can drain fluid off of it if you need to. Exactly. Um, They can place it uh, in the um, epidural space. Um, But I think the one I'm I'm most familiar with is the one that they place in the the ventricle. Yeah, so ventriculostomy allows you to drain CSF, so it can be therapeutic. Uh, But if we say they're placing a bolt, which is probably one of the more common. Where are they actually placing that? Is it just intraparenchymal? Yeah, just intraparenchymal. You, you can put it anywhere in the brain and get the pressure because they equalize, but but a, generally a bolt is intraparenchymal, a ventriculostomy is in the ventricle. Okay, the golden rule of head trauma, or, or I'll, give you, I'll give you the question. Um, you have a patient who's got a bad brain injury, and they're going to ask which of these factors would most affect their outcome or or be the biggest factor in having a worse outcome. And they'll give you a list of things like, say, hypernatremia, hyponatremia, hypotension, acidosis, or temperature of 39. Yes, I think they're getting at uh, avoiding secondary injury with brain injury. So hypotension and hypoxia, I think, would be the two big things. Good. Yeah. So any, any drop in blood pressure, any DSAT, and those are obviously things you focus on on managing these patients, is you want to keep their blood pressure elevated, and you want to avoid any desaturations. Okay, so, so as we talked about, the D is looking for signs of elevated intracranial pressure. So what would be some of those signs at the bedside of a patient who has elevated intracranial pressure or is developing high intracranial pressure? Right. So you'd look for unilateral, bilateral pupil dilatation. Uh, you look for Cushing's triad, um, which you would see um, bradycardia, hypertension, and altered respiratory pattern. Um, they could have motor posturing, uh, which would be very concerning, one of the more likely, and then a rapid uh, decline in their mental status. Yeah, excellent. And and Cushing's triad, that that's a pattern you, you will see in almost no other trauma patient. The bradycardia and hypertension, as well as the altered respirations. Good. And what should we do with that patient? So uh, there's multiple, um, you know, potentially they need to go to the operating room uh, to get their uh, craniotomy. But, but just um, in, in general, in, can, can we start treating ICP based off that physical exam? We can. Okay. Uh, Good. So we can elevate the head of the bed. We can uh, ventilate them to a, a PCO2 of 35. Um, you can use sedation and paralysis. You can give them mannitol or hypertonic saline, um, okay. which are some of the main methods used. Great. And, and we'll get to how to approach that in a minute. But, uh, but the point is you start treatment right away. Oftentimes they'll give you a question that has some of those factors. And, and the answer is not go get a head CT and then base your treatment. It's not rush to the OR blind. It's you start your ICP management and then you, you know, get your imaging and get neurosurgery involved. So classic questions on types of head bleeds. Okay, the, the kid who's hitting the head with a baseball and he's not feeling great, vomits a couple times, but he's awake in GCS 15, and then suddenly he declines and he's a GCS of 3. What's the answer? 
So that's an epidural hematoma. That's your classic uh, lucid interval that you will clinically experience with that, and that's from a damage to uh, generally the middle uh, meningeal artery. Great. And what does that look like on head CT? You have the uh, typical crescent shape on the head CT. Yeah, and, and so it's a very focal and right. limited lesion because the epidural the attachments lines. will keep it in yeah. place, or it's also called lenticular. Lenticular. Um, okay, now you have a 90-year-old, say they're on Coumadin, they fell and hit their head, and they've got a skull fracture. What, what's their intracranial bleed going to be? Right, this is the classic uh, subdural hematoma um, where they tear the bridging veins. And this, um, I'm forgetting the name for it, but this is the long, thin sort of um, bleed along the um, just underneath the dura. Yes. Across the suture lines. Yeah, so, yeah. so it'll typically go along the whole hemisphere of the brain. And, and which of those two has a better outcome, epidural or subdural? Uh, the epidural hematoma does. Yeah, epidural has a much better outcome. You know, it's, it's something you can put a bar hole in, drain it, stop the bleeding. They're usually better. The subdural has a much worse outcome. It's usually because there's much more underlying brain injury. Okay, now you have a patient who is the high-speed motor vehicle collision. Let's say they starred the windshield, and their GCS is 7. What's their likely intracranial process? Uh, so these are uh, typically intraparenchymal contusions, intraparenchymal hemorrhages. Okay, great. And that's, that's probably that's the most common injury we see, much more common than epidural or subdural. And what's your management for that? Uh, avoiding secondary cause, uh, secondary secondary brain injury. Yeah, good. These yeah. these are not typically managed by any surgical intervention. Okay, and then just to round it out, the the spontaneous bleed, the person who has the worst headache of their life. Yeah, so that's a, a hemorrhage in the, the subarachnoid, a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Okay, great. All right, well, let's move on to intracranial pressure, which we already mentioned a bit. So the the uh, formula that we always use relating to intracranial pressure is what? So it's your cerebral perfusion pressure. So it's kind of the pressure that reaches the brain. Uh, and this is the way you calculate this is the mean arterial pressure uh, and subtract the intracranial pressure. Good. And in this formula, you can adopt this to any compartment, right? The, it's just a compartment syndrome, just like any compartment. So, And the compartment perfusion pressure is always going to be what's the pressure in that compartment Versus what's the driving pressure, driving, driving brain, driving blood into that compartment. So why do we care about CPP? Cerebral perfusion pressure. What's it telling us? It's, it's telling you how much uh, blood pressure is actually uh, reaching the brain cells. And you generally want it uh, greater than 60 to know that you're getting adequate perfusion. Okay, so, so greater than 60 would be about the absolute minimum we would accept. We'd like it if it's 70 or better. So if you, if you think about somebody who has a net, say they have a map of 80, right? If once their eye speed gets above 10, they're under that 70 number. But, but what would we really want to measure? What are, we're using CPP as a surrogate for something. What are we using CPP as a surrogate for? Because we don't really want to know about pressure, right? Flow? We want to know about blood flow. So CPP is a surrogate for cerebral blood flow, which is what if we could measure that directly, we would really want to know. So, And, and then sometimes there's a question about what CPP is actually trying to give you. Okay, so and we want our CPP above 60, pressure, preferably above 70. How about our ICP? 
Uh, well, generally, you know, if we have a, a, a ventriculostomy or some type of intracranial pressure monitor, we want to try and keep those pressures less than 20. Good. And, and obviously, the lower than 20, the better. Uh, once it gets above 20, that's typically the threshold for treating. Uh, of course, you'll also base that on your CPP measure. Okay, so, and there's some things that can affect cerebral blood flow and, and thereby cerebral perfusion pressure, but what's the major regulator of cerebral perfusion? Yeah, I've seen this one on the, on the test a, a couple times. It's pretty common. So this is your uh, PCO2 is the major regulator of cerebral perfusion. Good. And there are some other factors like acidosis, like temperature, but, but the PCO2 is by far the major regulator of cerebral perfusion. And it's also one of the most reliable interventions you can do to lower ICP. Is, is that based on arterial dilatation? Yes. Or? So, so if you hyperventilate somebody, what's going to happen to their ICP? You hyperventilate them, their ICP should go down. Good. Uh, but, of course, the question is, why is it going down? So vasoconstriction of the arteries. Yeah. So decreasing you're decreasing the, the cerebral blood flow, right, which lowers the pressure. But you have to remember person's got a brain injury, is decreasing their cerebral blood flow necessarily good? No. Yeah, well, to a, to a certain point. So you have to remember, you will lower the ICP, but you're doing it by decreasing the blood flow to the brain to some extent. And the corollary to that being, if you let their PCO2 rise, then what's going to happen? If their PCO2 rises then they're going to have uh, hyperperfusion um, of their brain. Yeah. So they'll get vasodilation. They'll get increased flow to the brain. And typically that will raise their ICP. Okay. And so, but, but in you right now, if we hyperventilated you or, you know, gave you a bunch of oxycodone and let your CO2 go up to 90 uh, or dropped your pressure to a map of 50, your cerebral blood flow would be about the same. And why is that? Uh, because of autoregulation. Good. And what happens in somebody with severe TBI? Uh, they lose that ability to autoregulate their pressure. Good. And so, so that means that their, their cerebral perfusion pressure is directly dependent on the mean arterial pressure, which is, again, why we focus so much on keeping the mean arterial pressure up, because uh, whereas there's, there's almost no relationship between a normal status and a brain injury, it's a direct reflection. Okay, so we talked a little bit about ICP. And now you have this patient who they've got Cushing's triad and they've got a fixed dilated left pupil. So what, what are the interventions we can do for that person? And we'll start from simplest to the more complex. Well, the simple things you can do immediately at the bedside is it was one you can raise the, the head of the bed, so make sure the head of the bed is elevated. Uh, something you got to think about with trauma patients is a lot of times they'll have a lot of things around their neck. They'll have sea collars. They'll have other things putting compression on their neck. So make sure that their their neck is free of anything that's compressing the blood flow. Um, and then uh, a lot of these patients are already intubated, so you can you can do some mild hyperventilation, especially in the short term, uh, to drive their PCO two down uh, around thirty five. Yeah, 35 to 40 range is good. Okay, and then and then we get into the medical interventions we can do. And so what would be the targeted interventions we can do to lower ICP? Um, so one of the, the favorites I've seen, at least in the ERs recently, is the hypertonic saline. Um, as mannitol has gone a little bit out of favor, but I think either of those would be a correct answer on the ab site for lowering ICP. Um, and then additionally always is... Uh, 
with sedation and paralysis or and then hyperventilation are all good ways to help uh, manage uh, lower help lower the ICP. Good. So, yeah, and so I think it comes down to either hypertonic saline or mannitol for your pharmacologic therapies. Uh, If they give you a scenario where you have a multi-system trauma patient and they've got a bad brain injury, you know, but they're severely injured, let's say they're bleeding, they're hypotensive, then hypertonic saline would be the correct answer because that will resuscitate them and volume expand them as well as lower their ICP. The standard patient isolated head injury, I, I think it's either one dealer's choice, mannitol, and usually one gram per kilogram is fine. Hypertonic saline is fine. Uh, and, and how are those lowering ICP? Uh, they are you know, osmotic uh, diuretics, essentially, and it's bringing uh, fluid out of the brain into the, the vessels. Good. So so they're both creating a hyperosmotic state, uh, hypertonic saline doing it by increasing your natural regulator of osmolarity, your sodium, and mannitol just introducing a false, uh, a, uh, a false agent to elevate that. Okay. So some adjuncts to head injury. Uh, how about seizure prophylaxis? Uh, well, it seems like this is changing a lot. Um, it's uh, it's good at preventing. So I think most neurosurgeons nowadays are using it if there is an intracranial bleed, but not necessarily for just blunt head injury. Um, and it's good for preventing you know early seizures, um, those, the seizures that you would see within the first week after the injury. Okay, and and. And there's a difference between what the neurosurgeon will do and what's on the ab site. <laughs> so for the ab site purposes, if, if you have, you know, a trauma patient with intracranial hemorrhage and they're asking you about this, the answer will be you give them seizure prophylaxis. And it can either be Dilantin or now a lot of places have moved to Keppra. And how long would you do that for? Uh, just a short term. Like I said, I think most people are just doing it for a week post-injury. Yeah, so so it's just a week. It helps prevent early seizures. Continuing it has not been shown to prevent uh, longer duration seizures. So it's typically a short course. Um, okay, how about feeding these patients? Uh, just like it, where everything's going in surgery, early enteral feeding is uh, the best to help prevent brain injury. Good. So enteral feeding within 24 to 48 hours for severe brain injury patients. Uh, obviously, correcting coagulopathy. Many of these patients are on anticoagulants, which actually we'll get to on a, on a later slide. How about steroids for head injury? Uh, there's been shown no benefit um, in these patients. Yeah. How about one step further? It can actually harm them. Yeah, so so steroids are gone for head injury, and and if you get this question, it's an easy answer for you. Uh, it's steroids have no benefit. Okay, so we'll talk about one of these patients, seventy five year old female in this motor vehicle collision, and she has a significant intracranial hemorrhage. She's on Coumadin, and her INR is four point five. So, what should we do for that patient in terms of reversing her coagulopathy? Uh, so so uh, nowadays, I, I think the safe answer is even on the upside is PCC. So you give them PCC, you can rapidly and predictably reduce or reverse their coagulopathy. Okay, and and what's PCC for someone who might have never heard of it? Prothrombin uh, complex concentrate. Good. And and what else? What else can you give this person? Uh, you can give vitamin K. Um, you could give FFP. Good. So vitamin vitamin K, I would always give to them, but but I think now the board answer would be PCC for rapid reversal. Um, I, don't, I don't think the dose you would need to know for the ab site. Okay, so now we'll say this patient is on one of the uh, novel 
oral anticoagulants. So this patient's on Pradaxa, which yeah. is also Dabigatran. So it's a trickier situation in, the, in where I've been is you, we actually start with PCC because you do get some reversal in it, and that's really our only option. Um, if their bleed is uh, severe, um, you can progress on to dialysis. Okay, so for the abscite test question, they're on Pradaxa, they've got significant bleeding, what's your answer? Dialysis. Good. That's the one that has to be dialyzed. Um, how about Apixaban or Rivaroxaban, either one? Uh, Again, there's no antidote, and uh, PCC gives some partial reversal. Yeah, so, so this is the one that PCC will partially reverse, so you can consider it. Um, actually, and I think we're going to be doing critical care, a critical care review, separate session, and we'll be talking about those agents in a little more detail. Okay, let's talk about the spine. So, obviously, we immobilize m almost all of our trauma patients, um, but there are some patients we need imaging and some patients we can clear clinically. And this is also, I think, a favorite question. So, who can we clear clinically? So, there has to be um, a few things. There has to be no distracting injuries. Uh, they have to be um, examinable, so they have to um, uh, have a, GC, uh, a GCS of, uh, say, at least 14, 15. Um, Non-negotiable. 15. 15. 15. <laughs> uh, they have to be not intoxicated, um, not on any sedating medications. Okay. Um, and then how about their exam and complaints? So they have to have no neurologic uh, findings on exam. Um, if you know, you know, midline tenderness, if you're talking about clearing somebody's C-spine, uh, no, uh, bony tenderness or midline tenderness, uh, like I said, no, um, no neurologic findings. Um, yeah, those yeah. are the big ones. Good. Yeah. So awake, alert, examinable, no intoxicants, no distracting injury, which means a significantly painful injury that they can't focus on your exam, no midline tenderness. And you can take the collar off. And no neurologic deficits, obviously. Okay. And then if you can't clear them clinically, what's next? Um, there's actually a great review on the uh, trauma cast about this big debate on C-spine clearance. But for the abscite, uh, plain x-rays, flexion extension, that's out of favor. We don't do those for C-spine injuries. Um, so generally, you'll get a CT scan um, of their, their C-spine to clear their C-spine. Yeah. So the answer in, in today's day and age is CT scan. And if they give you a choice of x-rays and clearing, uh, that is the wrong answer for adults. I'll give that caveat. For pediatric patients, that's still debated a little more. But for adults, that's that's pretty much been settled. Okay, a favorite of the boards are spinal syndromes, spinal cord injury syndromes. So let's start with central cord syndrome. Just, just so this is generally the, the old lady um, who fell who has um, weakness in her arms and otherwise a normal motor exam. Okay, good. So So can they have weakness in their legs? Yeah, they'll typically have both, but it's the arms are much more affected than the legs, which, which you'll see in almost no other spinal cord injury syndrome. Or it's also called the, the cape and gloves distribution. So it's like a, they're wearing a cape, and that's where their symptoms are. And what's the, what's the underlying pathology? They generally have spinal stenosis. Good. It's, this is the old patient with spinal stenosis who uh, gets a spinal cord contusion. Okay. Brown-Saccard syndrome, also called hemisection. 
Yep. So this is a hemisection of the spinal cord. And, and uh, on physical exam, you'll find um, ipsilateral motor deficits and contralateral uh, pain and temperature deficits below the level of the injury. Good. A, again, a, a something you'll see almost nowhere else and, and pretty uncommon. What's what's the mechanism? It's normally like a stab wound yeah, uh, to it, the spine. Yeah, it's usually a penetrating and, and, and even that stab more than a gunshot wound. Okay, anterior cord syndrome. So anterior cord syndrome, uh, you could see possibly after um, some aortic case um, where they cause uh, malperfusion to the spine. Um, and this is you get um, exclusively motor deficits with anterior cord syndrome. Good. Or, or just a trauma with a vascular injury to the anterior spinal artery. Okay. How about uh, the pediatric patient who comes in and can't move their legs and their spinal imaging is normal? So this is the spinal cord, uh, spinal cord injury without uh, radiographic abnormality. Uh, I think this Good. is Skewora. Um, I think it's becoming less common with the you know uh, the better scanning you know the the uh, higher resolution MRIs uh, we're able to pick up some abnormalities so I think this is becoming less common but okay and then and then the other pathology just to be aware of in the pediatric population is pseudosubluxation uh, and and that's typically where they'll they'll give you a finding where you have a C spine a small amount of subluxation anteriorly but they have no tenderness, they have no neurologic deficit, and, and that's basically, that's a normal variant of pediatric patients can have pseudosubluxation. So no further imaging is required, and you can clear their C-spine. All right, an, another favorite for, for the boards, and just one of my personal favorites in these, is, is the confusing terms about shock, spinal and neurogenic. Okay, so there's always some confusion about spinal shock versus neurogenic shock. So why don't we start with... What's what's the difference between spinal shock and neurogenic shock? So I, I think a way you can dis, uh, you can distinguish these is uh, by your autonomic um, uh, reflexes. So with spinal shock, you lose your motor reflexes and um, uh, you, uh, basically the reflexes that are along the spinal cord. But with neurogenic shock, you're losing your autonomic autonomic regulation. So you'll get things like bradycardia, hypotension, that type of thing. Yeah, and, and so so the, the big difference is one, one is talking about hemodynamics, and that's neurogenic, and one is talking about your neurologic exam and how bad of a spinal cord injury you have, and that's spinal shock. The way I remember it is, you know, when you talk about hemodynamic shock, you talk about septic, cardiogenic, and so I just remember the genic, cardiogenic, and then neurogenic. Those are the hemodynamic ones, and, and neurogenic shock typically presents uh, how? Uh Generally, they have the uh, warm extremities, mm -hmm. um, and they're hypotensive and bradycardic. Good. So, yeah, and, and, and if you get a question of they're warm and perfused and hypotensive, that's almost always a spinal cord injury. Now, spinal shock, this is the one that confuses a lot of people. So, spinal shock is in the setting of spinal cord injury, and how do you diagnose spinal shock? Because uh, everyone who, let's just say, everyone who has a bad spinal cord injury, they're paralyzed from the waist down. Some may have spinal shock, some might not. So uh, one way is you can test their reflexes, such as their bulbal cavernosis reflex, and if that's intact, um, they do not have spinal shock. Good. So so if their their reflexes, the bulbal cavernosis and the cremasteric are the two most common ones, if those are not present, it means they're in spinal shock. 
Uh, and those reflexes will come back even with a complete spinal cord injury, whereas most other reflexes won't. So once their reflexes come back, now they're paralyzed from the waist down and they have a cremasteric reflex. What does that tell you about their spinal cord injury? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, probably a bad thing. Yeah, that, that tells you that they are not now out of spinal shock and whatever deficits they have are likely permanent. I see. I see. So, so when you examine someone and they're in spinal shock, you can say, well, some function might come back. We'll have to wait and see. When they're out of spinal shock, their deficits are permanent. So that's the importance of the term spinal shock is determining if it's a – you can depend on their neuro exam at that time or not. Yep. And once they're out of spinal shock, whatever deficits they have are usually permanent. Okay. And that's why it's, that's why it's an important part of the exam, especially with spine surgeons. We'll talk about that a lot. Okay. And so management now. So management of spinal injury. Uh, I mean, first and foremost, destabilization and immobilization. Okay. How about steroids? Uh, again, no, we kind of touched on this, but no longer indicated in, in trauma. Um, we actually had a case of this recently where, uh, with central cord syndrome, there's not a lot of good data, but, uh, that, uh, some people will still use it for that. But for the most part, no longer indicated. Yeah. So if you now get an abscite question with a typical spinal cord injury and they ask about giving steroids, the, the answer is no, you don't give steroids. Um, it's just really been shown not to improve outcomes and obviously has some adverse side effects. Okay. A, a lot of times we like to talk about, is this a stable or an unstable fracture? So, so how do we determine stable versus unstable? Uh, so we're referring to the spine. Um, it's, you have three columns of the spine and if they have all three columns that are damaged, that would be an unstable fracture. Yeah, and those columns correspond to ligaments, right? right? So so the rule is usually you have to have two of the three columns disrupted, True. which means two of the three major ligaments disrupted, and that's unstable. And what type of injuries will usually give you that? We'll just say blunt or penetrating. Blunt. Yeah, yeah. very, very uncommon to have an unstable penetrating spine injury. Okay, so real quick, respiratory issues in spinal cord injury. Um, what are the spinal cord levels that control the diaphragm? Um, C3, 4, and 5. Good. So sometimes on the app site, they'll give you a patient who's got a high cervical cord injury, um, but they're, they're breathing okay. You know, they're, they might be a little tachypnic and their SATs are 92%. Uh, and what do you want to do with that patient? Um, if they're, they're breathing okay, I mean, the concern is that they need to be intubated. Um, but if they have, if, if the chest X-ray shows that their diaphragm is intact and you know working, they don't necessarily need to be intubated. I would think. Yeah, and and what will happen with those people in terms of how how will they fail from a respiratory standpoint? Will they come in in respiratory distress? No, because they can use their um, other muscles of respiration initially, and then they'll wear out. Yeah, so they they often have a slow insidious, and twelve hours later they're having a respiratory arrest. So generally, somebody above a C four. Uh, usually we just intubate them um, and then evaluate them and see whether they need a tracheostomy or not later. Okay, let's uh, move on down from the head to the neck. Uh, penetrating neck trauma. Um, again, another favorite board question, although I think it's becoming less relevant clinically, is the zones of the neck when we talk about penetrating neck trauma. Um, so what are the zones of the neck just anatomically? Uh, so the zones of the neck, uh, 
it goes in reverse order of, and you start at, in the chest with the great vessels from the, the clavicle to the cricoid. Um, and then it goes from, from there you have zone two, which primarily as far as vessels go, contains the carotid. Again, you have the esophagus and trachea, and that goes up to the base of the mandible, um, the angle of the mandible, I'm sorry. And then zone three is the zone that we can't reach and we can't really operate on. Um, and that's from the angle of the mandible to the base of the skull. And that has the, the carotids with the pharynx and the larynx. Okay, good, good. So, and the, uh, yeah, from the angle of the mandible up, so obviously a small space. And, and what part of the neck are we talking about? Anterior, lateral, posterior? Um, generally anterior and lateral. Yeah, so remember, this doesn't apply to posterior neck, so so we're talking about the really the anterior and the lateral neck. Okay, and what are the structures we're worried about in the neck? Any question about the neck is, is generally going to come down to one of these three or four structures. Uh, so, I mean, the neck is, is tiger country, so you have a lot of high, you know, high-stakes real estate. You have great vessels, your carotids, esophagus, trachea, um, and... Those are those are pretty much the main ones that you're Good. looking for. And and those are those are the those are the three that you're really worrying about and trying to figure out if they're injured. So the the vessels, the carotid or jugular, the esophagus, and the trachea, right? And aerodigestive tract or vessels. All right. So the patient comes in and they have a penetrating neck injury and they're hypotensive. Um, with an isolated uh, penetrating a neck injury, that patient would need to go to the operating room immediately. Yeah, so that's an easy answer. They're, they're unstable. You take them to the operating room and do a neck exploration. Okay, now they have hard signs of a vascular injury. Uh, that patient would also need to go directly to the operating room. Okay, and we can talk about hard signs when we get to extremity stuff. Uh, now they don't have those. Um, so... Th- Depending on platysma violation or not, um, those patients will likely get a, a CT, a neck angiogram. Okay. And, and you made a great point. So if it hasn't violated the platysma, if you're able to tell that, then you wouldn't even can't characterize that as a penetrating neck injury. If it has violated the platysma, um, then you really have a couple options on how to proceed uh, based on your exam. So remember, you want to do a full exam. And you want to look for other signs of an injury. And what are some of those other signs? We already said hard signs of an injury are easy. You go to the OR. Right. What are some of the other signs that might not mean you need to go to the OR, but you need further evaluation? Um, maybe if they had a motor deficit. Um, Good. If they had a hematoma of some sort. Good. Uh, so soft signs of vascular injury. So a non-expanding right. hematoma. Um, crepitus. Good. How about air coming from the wound? So air coming from the wound. And then the other ones are any signs of hemoptysis or hematemesis. Uh, all those need, you at least need to do some further workup. And, and in 20, we'll say 2017, this will be when they're taking their absites. What's the evaluation of choice? It is a CT neck angiogram. Yeah, we used to talk a lot about triple endoscopy and bronchoscopy, esophagoscopy, and angiography. Um, now, I, I think the screening study is a CT scan of the neck, uh, including a CT angiogram uh, that gives you the carotid vessels. And then you can base further workup on that. If you have a high suspicion for an esophageal injury, so you have, say, some hematemesis or, or you think there's some air from the wound or they're having, uh, you know, trouble swallowing, then what would you do? Uh, then we would need an EGD. 
Yeah, and and this and, and some people would say a, a swallow study, so okay. an esophagram. So it'd either be an esophagram or an esophagoscopy, uh, but otherwise the CT scan is your initial study of choice. Okay, so you decide you need to explore this neck. What's your incision the approach for standard penetrating neck trauma? Uh, so similar to a if it's a unilateral neck trauma, I would do a large incision along the sternocleidomastoid. Middle of it, posterior border? I'm sorry, anterior border. Good. So right along anterior border, sternocleidomastoid, uh, essentially from the uh, almost from the base of the ear down to the sternal notch. And what are you exploring? What structures? Um, so initially, I'll be focused on the, the blood vessels, the jugular and the carotid. Um, and then uh, I would move to the trachea. Um, and then uh, as much of the esophagus as you can get to from that. Good. And, and those are your big structures you're looking at. Same as you are worried about, you know, on the workup. Um, and which which side of the neck would it be easier to explore the esophagus? The left side. Good. And, and that's also sometimes a question. Much It's easier to get to the esophagus from the left side. So, so if you have to do an esophageal exploration, left side is easier. But you can do it from either side, though. Okay. Now we'll say you had this patient who got stabbed in the neck, didn't have any hard signs. Uh, you got a swallow study, and you see a small leak of contrast uh, coming from the esophagus. And you explore them, uh, but you don't see an esophageal injury. See a little bit of inflammation, but no injury. Uh, the, for that, I would I would probably just leave. I would just widely drain the area and leave drains. Good. Uh, I mean, you do everything you can to identify the injury, but if you can't see it, you just leave a closed suction drain and close. Okay. So now you've found a four centimeter esophageal laceration. How do you how do you want to repair this? Um, so I want to make sure that I see, you know, the mucosal extent of my injury, um, and then I'll repair it in two layers. Um, so I'd repair with a, um, you know, an inner layer of an absorbable suture, 4-0 or 5-0 absorbable suture, and an outer layer of a permanent suture. Yeah, and so how do you ensure that you've seen the entire mucosal? Uh, a lot of times you'll have to extend, you'll have to extend the myotomy. Good. Yeah, so the answer is you, you extend the myotomy enough to see the entire mucosal defect, and then you do the suture repair. So let's talk about a little bit about esophageal perforation. So is, is there any such thing as non-operative management of esophageal perforations? On the ab side, I don't believe so. Well, there, there are some situations where you can do non-operative management. Um, what types of injuries do you think would be amenable to non-operative management? Um, I believe, uh, you know, the small contained um, maybe from a dilation on an EGD or something like that. Yeah, uh, good. But, and far, far and away, it's the endoscopic injuries that you can manage non-operatively. And, and what are your criteria for, see, for an injury that you think could be managed non-operatively? We'll start off with location. Location. So it would have to be... And we'll, we'll, we'll clarify. So the esophagus really has three zones, right? Cervical thoracic and abdominal so which of those would you not manage non-operatively intra-abdominal yeah so an intra-abdominal you usually cannot manage that non-operatively so it's usually cervical or thoracic and which of those would you manage non-operatively um, so if it was small it was contained the patient um was not septic in appearance mm-hmm. um didn't have a large uh, pleural effusion um and then no 
distal obstruction and no kind of cancer pathology that good good um and those are criteria outlined by cameron um so you want to get a swallow study and you want to see a small contained perforation they they characterize it you want to see the flow of the contrast back into the lumen of the esophagus no communication with the pleural space and no distal obstruction or, or pathology uh, the patient stay one has no signs of sepsis and th- those are the ones that you can manage non-operatively and and how would you do that so generally you want to get drainage of the area um so um potentially a chest tube um to help well no they they have no communication with the pleural space okay they're fine what are you going to do to treat them non-operatively um npo good antibiotic good there you go npo and antibiotics and then you get a repeat swallow study at some interval Okay, let's move on to blunt neck trauma. So you have a high-speed motor vehicle collision patient, and they have an acute mental status decline, and you get a head CT, and it's normal. What else would you be worried about? Uh, you have two vascular structures that go to the brain that could be injured um, in these patients. Good. So blunt cerebrovascular injury, uh, particularly in someone who has an unexplained neurologic or mental status deficit, and you're worried about the carotids of the vertebrals. Um, so you have the patient who has symptoms, so they, they deteriorated neurologically, or they essentially present with deficits similar to a stroke. You're worried about a carotid injury. That's easy. Those are the ones you evaluate. How about patients that have no symptoms, no neurologic deficits? Is there anyone we should screen for a blunt cerebrovascular injury? So, um, yes. So if they have uh, fractures, either a cervical spine fracture, a base of skull fracture, severe facial fractures, a seatbelt sign above the clavicle, and then, and then also the patients that have uh, GCS less than eight or infarcts on head CT um, would be some of the highest yield Good. patients. Good. And so, so any of those patients, we should be screening them for a blunt cerebrovascular injury. And, and the big ones are the high-risk fractures that are right around the carotid vessels and the vertebral vessels, right? So C-spine, uh, base of the skull and mandible, um, the Lafort fractures, uh, seatbelt sign, as you mentioned. Also on exam, if you hear a cervical brewery or a thrill or feel a thrill, then uh, those are all criteria. And how would you screen them? Again, it's 2017. Right. How would we screen them? Um, CTA. Yeah, CT has, has clearly become the screening study of choice. Uh, this was a debate up until at least a couple years ago, angio versus CT, and, and CT scan is now the study of choice. Where are these blunt cerebrovascular injuries usually located? So for the carotid artery, it's uh, for both of them, they're both distal, um, and the carotid in it's uh, in an area that's not surgically accessible, generally. Good. So it's usually distal internal carotid, and which, again, it's, it's difficult to assess surgically, which is usually why we do not do much intervention. And what would your treatment be? Uh, so generally, um, just an antiplatelet um, is all that will be needed, and sometimes anticoagulation. If it's a large enough dissection or progressing um, injury, they could maybe need an endovascular stent. Good. Yeah. So, so generally, you know, for the standard dissection of the internal carotid, your treatment is usually an antiplatelet agent or anticoagulation. Um, there is now a role for endovascular intervention, and that would usually be for a, a pseudoaneurysm or an AV fistula. I think an AV fistula, that's the one where there's clearly a role for endovascular intervention. Okay. So let's keep on moving down the body and get to thoracic trauma. So flail chest, how, how would we define a flail chest? 
Uh, so for a flail chest, you have to have uh, three consecutive ribs with fractures in two places that can create a flail segment. Good. And what's the cause of that patient's hypoxia? Um, the cause is just pain and not um, breathing well enough. So, so, and this this is also this was also a favorite board question. Um, the the actual cause usually of the hypoxia is it is it the flail segment is it the paradoxical motion? No. So what is it? So it's usually the underlying pulmonary contusion. Oh, okay. Uh, and so so they'll give you a question where they ask you know about the cause of the patient's hypoxia and it's not the flail segment it's not the paradoxical motion it's usually because they have an underlying pulmonary contusion. So management. Um, so. Like all chest trauma patients, you need good pain control. Um, and Which like, would usually be what for a flail chest? An, ep- an epidural. Yeah, epidural is your pain control of choice. Yeah. Um, potent- and then um, if it's severe enough and they have a severe enough contusion, you would consider early intubation. Um, and then potentially if they do have a paradoxical motion um, and severe pain, you could consider uh, plating them. Okay, good. Um, now we'll talk about the patient who car crash and they slammed into their steering wheel and now they're they're hypotensive and you know that you have clearly identified that they are not bleeding they have no other injuries you can identify other than they've got a pretty good sternal fracture Uh, and they're they're throwing some pbcs so what are you concerned about uh so then i'm concerned about blunt cardiac injury in this patient good and what would you do to confirm that um I think I would, I would get an echo um, to confirm. So first you start with the EKG. Good. Um, so the most common finding right. is an EKG abnormality. Right. And confirmation would be with an echocardiogram. You can check troponins, although that that's controversial in this, and, and I don't think that would be an absolute answer. And I, I've definitely seen questions on this, and the answer at first is EKG. Yeah. EKG, yeah, EKG. The answer is always EKG yeah. for cardiac contusion. Okay. And then just to round it out, so pulmonary contusions patient comes in and has a big pulmonary contusion what's the typical history of that going to be over the first couple days uh generally um on day two um they you know or day three uh they'll it'll blossom when they are fluids are mobilizing and um they'll have a kind of an ards like picture in that that side of the lung good so the typical pattern is it it'll progress 24 to 48 low, uh, hours later is when they'll usually uh, have their worst point and get hypoxic okay so i get the same patient car crash slam the steering wheel and you think they have a blunt aortic injury so so what would lead you to suspect a blunt aortic injury so for a blunt aortic injury, um, the mechanism is a is a strong way. Um, chest trauma um, hitting the steering wheel. If they had a widened median mediastinum, um, if they have a hemothorax on one side, um, if they had maybe a recurrent laryngeal nerve paralysis, would be kind of a zebra reason um, to be concerned about that. Okay, uh, so so typically you'll have some concerning chest X-ray findings, and you mentioned one widened mediastinum. Um, there, there's probably at least 10 to 12 chest x-ray findings. Uh, wide mediastinum would be the most common one. What would some other ones be? Um, the aortic knob um, is in, obscured. obscured. Um, you could have uh, like pneumomediastinum. 
Yeah, that wouldn't really be for blunt aortic injury, though. Um, uh, and, and it's all related to you have blood building up right. uh, around that aortic arch. So you have arch. a little blush in the top of the chest that has Good. a pseudonym. So that's called an apical cap. Apical cap. Um, it'll push the left main stem bronchus down. So you okay. have depression of the left main stem bronchus. What's it going to do to the mediastinum? Um, it can compress the mediastinum and cause... So it'll push it to the right, right. So you'll have rightward deviation of the mediastinum. Those are the big ones. And then possibly an associated left pleural effusion if the blood is, is communicated with the left chest. So what are you going to do to confirm that diagnosis um, in 2017? <laughs> uh, a CTA. Good. Yeah, and again, the, the diagnostic study of choice now is a CT uh, angiogram for blunt aortic injury. Where's the tear going to be? Uh, just distal to the uh, ligamentum arteriosum. Which is where? Uh, uh, it's in using the... Using your vessel landmarks. Just distal to subclavian artery. Good. Which subclavian? I'm sorry, the left subclavian. Good. So, yeah. So, for the ones we're talking about, it's always distal to the left subclavian. Um, you can also get injury at the aortic root or at the diaphragmatic hiatus. Those are less common. So, But when we're talking about the standard blunt thoracic aortic injury, that's where the injury is. So what's your answer going to be on managing this patient? Give me so, in, in two words. Um, what's your therapy going to be for this patient uh, initially? Blood pressure control. Good. With what? Uh, beta blockers. Good. So, yeah. So remember, these these are no longer rush them to the operating room immediately and crack them open. It's managing their blood pressure, and typically your first agent is going to be a beta blocker. That that's an easy answer for the ab site. And what are our options now if we think this needs to be repaired? There's really two two options. Um, so you have the endovascular option of an a TVAR essentially to seal the defect, and then you still have your uh, potential open thoracic graft that you could place if it was good so you can do an open repair or an endovascular repair and i think endovascular has now become the preferred approach for most of these but if you do have to do an open how would you do it i would do a uh, left posterior lateral thoracotomy potentially thoracoabdominal incision um, if depending on how big my graft would need to be um, and place a uh, a graph that way. Okay, but what would you do as an adjunct? Just would you just clamp, clamp? No, I'd get cardiac bypass. Yeah. So the answer, the answer today is for for an open, I think would be left heart bypass. Right. So your option is either going to be the answer on your ab site is either going to be if they're leading you towards an open, it's going to be a left postural thoracotomy with left heart bypass, or it's going to be an endovascular graft. And what are the big risks that we worry about with when we fix these? Uh, paralysis. Good. And higher with open or endovascular? Um, open. Yeah. So the rate seems to be definitely higher with an open approach. Okay. Endovascular repair. Which patients are candidates for it? So they have to have adequate uh, inflow vessels to be able to access the um, thoracic aorta. They have to be stable to some extent. Uh, and, and, and really, that's it. This used to be it was the lousy open candidates who you do an endovascular or the high risk. And now I think it's, it's the standard. So it, it's really it, if you're physically unable to shove that graft in there, it's probably about the only real contraindication now. OK, another favorite question. You do an endovascular repair for this injury and it's post-op day one and the patient's left hand is now cold and, and turning dusky. Right. It always makes me nervous because they generally cover the left subclavian 
And so when you're covering left subclavian with a T-var graft, it can sometimes cause this problem. And uh, the treatment for this would be a carotid to subclavian bypass. Good. This is another one of those. You should know the answer as you're reading the question. The answer is carotid subclavian bypass. Um, fortunately, this happens relatively uncommonly, even, even with covering the left subclavian. Most patients will not require that. Okay. So you now have this thoracic trauma patient. You put a chest tube in. And what would make you go to the operating room in terms of bleeding? So if I had an initial uh, chest tube output, I think of 1,500. Uh, so let's start. What's the first thing that would drive you to the operating room? Um, and it's not is, and hypotensive. Yeah. So hemodynamic instability and, and you don't have another identified source. Good. And then in terms of output. Um, so the initial output, I believe, is 1,500. Yeah. And I think that would be the one that would be the the board answer would be right. greater than 1500 initially and then um I, I think hourly it's over like a four hour period if it averages over about 300 cc's per hour yeah somewhere. most would say 200 an hour for okay. four hours so so just think a total of 800 cc's okay. so 200 an hour for four hours or 100 an hour for eight hours okay um, but so in, if you general, hit 800 cc's you go to the or yeah, in general ongoing bleeding yeah. Okay, uh, you have a question about a elderly patient who fell and they've got five rib fractures. And what are you going to do with that patient? And uh, your options are discharge them home with an oral regimen, admit them to the ward, admit them to the ICU. The patient has a very high mortality, um, so they're going to be admitted to the ICU. Good. So rib fractures in elderly patients now, I mean, we, we now realize that's a high, high morbidity and mortality group. And what else are you going to do for them? Uh, you're going to uh, consider either a rib block, depending on what your anesthesia is comfortable with, rib block versus epidural Good. in these patients. Okay. So now you have this thoracic trauma patient, and you get some imaging, and they've got a diaphragmatic rupture. Uh, so the patient, you would stabilize them first uh, and take them to the operating room, and generally I would uh, perform an a laparotomy on them and fix their diaphragm with uh, some prosthetic mesh if needed okay. um, through the diaphragm. And what's the common associated injury they're going to have usually with a, let's say they have a left diaphragm rupture. What else is typically uh, injured? Their spleen. Good. Yeah. You almost yeah. always see that with a splenic laceration. Until next time, dominate the day. 